Welcome back, creeps. What up, y'all? What up, y'all? There we go. There's that dulce we all know and love. <laughs> this week's patron of the week is Joanne M. Joanne. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, thank you very much, Joanne. We absolutely adore you. Yeah. And thank you for all the support. We fucks with you. Yeah, yeah, we do big time. Right, before we get started, I just want to say a quick apology. Last week I made a pretty I thought it was an innocent joke about uh Todd Colehip's weight. And I'm not sure if I said any more than that. But one person did point out that that was unfair and I just wanted to be known that we're not fat phobic or anything here. I was just making a shitty joke, trying to get some laughs. We are not fat phobic, but we are against murder. We are against murder, kidnapping and rape. Yes. So I should have made fun of him because of that and not because of his size or anything like that. So yeah, again, apologies to anybody I offended. I did not mean to. And moving on. How was your week so far? Fucking killer. Animal Crossing? Yeah, yeah. And some more Animal Crossing? Right on. Yeah. One of my villagers just left. She was like, I want to leave. And I'm like, that's cool. Spread your wings and fly, little birdie. That's right. I did. (laughs) And now I have a kangaroo coming in. I'm not sure how I feel about it. I might fence her in into her house. That's psychotic. It is, but I want to see if it works. Okay, cool. Well, I got my Texas driver license this week. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm pretty stoked about that. And today was your first day at work. And today was my first day. We were supposed to do this episode yesterday, but something just wasn't right. So we're doing it today. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't right yesterday. Yeah. Everything was wrong yesterday. I guess that happens sometimes, right? I think it was the salad. It set the tone I'm for the day. It <laughs> fair, was it was the Caesar salad I had for lunch set the tone for the day, and everything just went downhill. Downhill from the salad. Yeah. I mean, you know what your first problem was? What? Having a salad for lunch. I fucking love salads. I don't, and it's nothing against salads. They're just not for me. Yeah. I don't know why. Like, But in saying that, if we went to a specifically a salad place where you get like all the extras and shit. Yeah. I'll have that. Like salada? Yeah. I fuck with salada. Yeah. Yeah. Pita chips and stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, Dulce's going to go first, right? Yeah, let me fuck you up a little bit. (laughs) All right, y'all. So my sources are Daily Dot, Stoneham Studios, Zach Baggins from Tiny Pennies. Hold on, hold on. Wait a second. That's the name of the source from Tiny Pennies. Oh, so it wasn't Zach Baggins from Tiny Pennies. No, no, no. There's only one Zach Baggins. Okay, okay. Just checking. Zach Baggins. Zach Baggins. Alrighty. All right. So today we're talking about Bill Stoneham. Stoneham. So let me paint you a picture. Oh, I did that. I, I didn't mean to do that, but that's funny, and you'll know why. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Are you being punny? Yes, I'm being punny. Do we need to lock you up in the penitentiary? <laughs> <laughs> Bill was born in Boston, Massachusetts in 1947. For the first nine months of his life, he lived in an orphanage. 
The family that adopted him took him to Chicago, where they lived with his grandmother in her small apartment. Stoneham's father at the time traveled a lot for work in the advertisement field. As a boy, Bill's bedroom was a closet filled with dresses, coats, and hats. Bill slept on a mat on the floor in his closet. Is this fucking Harry Potter? Yeah, basically. Jesus. He told Daily Dot that he felt like he was just another article of clothing in this closet. Wow. They just kept hanging him up. <laughs> yeah. They're like, oh, sorry. Oh. <laughs> Bill made friends with a girl from this neighborhood. They played a lot together, so his parents made them stand in front of a glass door for a quick picture. He was five years old. Eventually, Stoneham moved to Southern California where he grew up and became a painter. He would later find that his biological mother was a painter herself for most of her life. He chose to only complete an associate of arts as he only felt he needed to learn the basics of materials and techniques. In 1972, Charles Feingarten Galleries contracted Stoneham for two years, two paintings a month for $200 a pop. He only sold one painting. It's a painting based on the photograph that was taken of him and his childhood friend in front of the glass door so long ago. He named it The Hands Resist Him. Based on a poem his first wife, R. Pinsetti, wrote in 1972. This is the poem that inspired the painting. He is of the seeing visions. His strokes reveal them in a rush of color of madness of mystics, and his head is the highest center. It must confront its enemy. The hands resist him, like the secret of his birth. His presence is the sanctum heartbeat, felt in darkness and in passion. Its sound, the sole gift to that silence. That was a good one. That was pretty deep. Okay. This painting is not an exact duplicate of the picture because Stoneham put his Neo-surrealist sauce on it. <laughs> okay. Here's how he describes this painting. Quote, where to begin? Well, I've always had a connection to what Carl Jung called the collective unconscious. I think we all do. Artists, especially visual artists, are barometers for the currents that run through this collective. Dreams are a common experience people may have with this. Anyway, my own experience is a sensitivity to place, physical, geographical place. There are memories, echoes of all the life within a place. Maybe it's what's called channeling. When I painted The Hands Resist Them in 1972, I used an old photo of myself at age five in a Chicago apartment. The hands are the other lives, the glass door, that thin veil between waking and dreaming. The girl is the imagined companion or guide through this realm. Henry Seldes was an art critic from the Los Angeles Times that was assigned to cover the Stoneham's art. I tried to find his review, but I couldn't find it. Oh. Actor John Marley was the person who bought this painting at an exhibition that would mark the ending of Stoneham's contract with Feingarten. He was the movie producer for The Godfather, and he was in the movie as well. His most famous scene is where he wakes up in bed with a severed horse head next to him. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Check it out. <sighs> like, the picture that I saw of it looks like he's unbothered by this 
like he sees this kind of shit all the time. Like it's like, oh, the I horse head. Yeah, you haven't seen that. I haven't seen the movie, but I saw a picture from the movie, uh, and he was just like, oh, horse head. <laughs> so it takes him a minute to realize what he's looking at. Uh, so that must have been the still that you saw, mm-hmm. and then he fucking loses it because that was like his prize-winning horse. That was a lot of money right there. Oh, well. Between 1978 and 1984, three of the men closest to the hands resistum died. Seldes, the art critic, in 1978, died of an apparent suicide in his apartment the day before his 53rd birthday. Feingarten, in 1981, died in a car accident. And Marley, in 1984, after having open-heart surgery, although he actually sold the painting before he passed. Yikes. The painting would disappear for the next 26 years and show up behind a California brewery brewery <laughs> <laughs> that was turned into an art space. In 2000, the painting was listed on eBay, and the seller said this. When we received this painting, we thought it was really good art. At the time, we wondered a little why a seemingly perfect fine painting would be discarded like that. Today, we don't. One morning, our four-and-a-half-year-old daughter claimed that the children in the picture were fighting and coming into the room during the night. The father set up a motion-sensitive camera in her room to show his daughter there was nothing to be afraid of. Instead, he saw the boy crawl from the painting. What? The last two pictures purport to show the doll coming to life and using a gun held in her hand to force the boy to leave the painting. So I don't have those pictures, unfortunately. I tried to find... Everything I could to just like prove that this is what yeah, that was this being seen, existed, like. but I really don't think it's out there. That's crazy. The painting was viewed thousands of times as word spread on the internet that this painting was fucking bonkers. The seller received lots of messages from people who experienced strange things after looking at his painting online. One reported hearing an exorcist type voice along with the blast of hot air. Another reported that he became ill while viewing the painting and had to burn white sage to cleanse his house afterwards. Another reported blackout slash mind control experiences. Whoa. Kim Smith won the eBay listing and paid $1,025 for it. Smith hasn't experienced anything himself, but he still gets unsolicited messages from other people about their own experiences with the painting. Reports of people being repulsed, made physically ill, or suffering from a blackout slash mind control experiences. The painting is being kept in Smith's own private gallery, and he has only been asked to show the painting six times with no consequence. Smith has received one offer to buy the painting, a low six-figure offer according to him, but he turned it down. Low six figures or not, that's some good money for a painting. Yeah, seriously. I don't know if I'd be able to turn that down. Smith had this to say. Nothing has ever been to the point where I consider it serious. It's kind of got its own mystique that's growing here. I think he turned it down because he knew this buyer could probably shell out more if he wanted, seeing as he is currently worth $35 million. He's just playing hardball now. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I should probably note, um, when I said that Smith showed this painting with no consequence, like he, since he's had it, he's had nothing weird going on. Okay. Um, 
But it's just one of those artifacts now that people are... Mystified by. Yeah, yeah. So, who are we talking about that's worth $35 million? It's got to be our Lord and Savior. Yeah, Zach Began. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what Zach Begans has to say about it. In this painting <laughs> are two children. He writes, I tried to purchase this painting for the Haunted Museum, but was unable to make a deal with the current owner. However, I was unable to stop thinking about it, so I started doing some research and got in touch with the artist, Bill Stoneham. Oddly, when we spoke, Bill told me that he sensed a strange connection to me and what it was, and that it was fate that I had called him. He has a strange connection with his bank account, I'd say. Uh-huh. <laughs> he eventually ended up painting for me the prequel to The Hands Resist Him, which he called The Hands Invent Him. It portrays the inside of the window from the original painting. The painting is pretty cool. Yeah. But I thought I was like, man, that's that's money right there. Like you got a guy to just fucking spin you a tale of a of the prequel to this famous ass painting, you know? Yeah, this guy definitely had this like in his closet for years or something. I was like, oh, I'll tell you what I'll do, Mister <laughs> Begins. That's a good. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that, but that makes sense because he knew how popular his painting was. Yeah. Yeah. So he goes on to say, this was a surreal experience for me, and it ended up becoming even eerier. Bill did not want me to see the painting until it was completed and shipped to me. While the painting was in transit, several staff members of the Haunted Museum and I began hearing the sounds of a child's tricycle traveling the halls of the building. What does that sound like exactly? Mm-hmm. Like jigsaw? Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that. Do the that sa- one more time. <laughs> <laughs> the sound was often accompanied by the ringing sound of a bicycle bell. Ah. Bring, bring. <laughs> Around this time, a light bulb mysteriously exploded in the oddities room. That's the oddities room. Yeah. For those who can't understand Dulce's impression of Zach Bagans. <laughs> Bagans. <laughs> it was located above an old coin-op machine that was on display. <laughs> this particular machine had a long hose coming out of it with a hand on the end. Once the painting arrived, I realized that it depicted a long hose with the hand on the end of it, <laughs> ringing the bell on a tricycle. I was in absolute shock over this. I had no logical way to explain the connection between the painting and the events that occurred at the Haunted Museum, except to say that Bill Stoneham is a very mystical person. He creates tarot cards and is very much in touch with the other side. Somehow, our connection created a link between me and two different versions of the hands paintings. According to Stoneham, now 67, he still receives messages each week from people about their experiences after seeing the painting online. And that's my story. That's insane. 
Yeah. So I, I have like, I knew all about the hands resist him, but I knew nothing about the hands invent him. There's a, there's actually, he, since then he's painted three more, uh, hands, hands paintings. Yeah. Okay. What's it's interesting the, though, is that, uh-huh. uh, he said that, or Zach said that he paints tarot cards because you can definitely see that style, like the tarot painting style in the new painting compared to the old one. Mm-hmm. But he does have the little half moon hanging down in the new one and in the old one. It's like the only two things that are spot on, really. Like, because there's so many hands in the old one. Yeah. Except the only one that's in common is the one ringing the bell. So that's interesting. Yeah. Don't worry, folks. I'll have these uploaded on Instagram and Facebook if you want to have a look. Or just Google them yourself. Yeah. But it's Stone Ham. Yeah. I looked at this painting several times and I never had any weird experiences like the Women of Lamb statue. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that the Women of Lamb statue is probably haunted. But this one, nothing. I mean, the only... I mean, the the painting is creepy as fuck. Yeah, it is. There's something definitely off about I th- it. I think it's... I think it's because um, the way that the doll is painted, she looks like flat and she has she has no eyes. Um, And also because the little boy has this enormous forehead. Yeah. And also just has jet black eyes. Yeah. I think like if you were to take that away, uh, I think it'd just be. A fairly regular picture. Yeah, just be a regular picture, yeah. Yeah, I remember looking it up before because wherever I had heard about it was like, don't look at this. So, of course, I had to go and look at it. Um, I'm not sure if um, I'm, someone reviewed his paintings, his like style of work. And to sum it up, like, and I agree with this, is that his work is the best when it's at its weirdest. And I can't remember who said that, but it's absolutely true. Yeah, I can understand that. I'm glad I learned that now. I wonder will Zach ever end up with... I'm sure he will eventually end up owning all of the paintings. Yeah. But I hope that guy holds out and charges him as much as he possibly can. Yeah. Just because we know that Zach Begans has that ridiculous kind of money. Yeah, he does. And to be fair, like it was probably for the best that he held out. On yeah, not yeah. selling that painting. Oh, that guy. Yeah, no, that was a smart move. Definitely. Because Zach Begans, if you were gonna if you were gonna buy that painting, he would immediately make that money back because people visit his museum so yeah. often. Is the number one tourist attraction in Vegas like four years in a row or some shit? The girl that I watch, I love her to death, Samantha March, but she says Vegas. 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 Like Las Vegas. Yeah, and it kind of irks me. <laughs> it kind of irks. She's like Vegas or something like that. All right, well, moving on. Um, my story this week is probably going to be a little longer and a little bit expected, probably, because I know I had reached out a few weeks ago and even this morning I woke up to a message, thank you, Olivia, saying, oh, that story that you were asking about is from spooked podcast Mm. season one and even gave me the name of the title so i was like thanks so much hope you're ready to hear that same story again (laughs) thankfully yes yes they were so the story i'm covering 
is from a book called The Boy They Tried to Hide. And if you were listening to episode 53, I talk about a social worker who came across a really odd situation. And I'm about to tell you all about it. Either way, the author's name is Shane Dunphy. And again, I just need to... Yeah, Shane Dunphy. And um, he just wrote this based on his life experience. The only thing that he says he changed was place names and people names for confidentiality reasons, obviously. Right, so I'm just going to get on with it. Okay. So our story starts with an interesting little encounter at a ruined cottage in the woods. Shane Dunphy is out having a walk with his friend George, who is also the principal of the school where Shane works. They're about to stop for something to eat, and George says, there's a little spot up here that we can sit down and relax. They come to a clearing where this little cottage lay in ruins, no roof or anything. They discuss what it might have been, and then they realise that Shane's dog, Millie, hasn't followed them. George has brought a little bone for Millie to munch on, but even when he throws it to her, she won't come any closer. So she just sits there kind of moaning or whatever. And Shane thinks his dog is just being a little weirdo and thinks no more of it. But George gets up, goes over to her and gives her the bone. And the whole time they're having their little picnic, she stays on like kind of the perimeter Mm-hmm. I'm glad she got her bone. Yeah, me too. She's a little greyhound. And in hindsight, like I guess when he sat down to write the book and thought about it, Shane says that when they initially walked into that clearing, it felt as though the woods was holding its breath. The little two-room, roofless stone cabin sat in the middle of this clearing and all around it lay fallen trees due to a recent storm. All around it, but none had actually fallen anywhere near the building itself. Strange coincidence, sure. But as they're discussing the possibilities of what this building may have been, George tells Shane that it wasn't on any of the old township maps going back like years and years, which was odd because literally every other little storage shed, like wooden buildings and stuff, were on these maps, but this permanent stone building was nowhere to be seen. And the reason George had checked that stuff is because he's lived in this town over 30 years and he's a history buff and he walks these woods like that's his hobby. Because I did think it was a bit strange that he knew this fact. (laughs) But as they're getting up to leave, Shane suddenly hears something. Millie reacts at the exact same time and he asks George, did you hear that? George hadn't heard anything. Shane assumed he was just freaking himself out, but finally, embarrassed, he tells George, I thought I heard a child crying, just for a second, and then it was gone. All George said was, woods are strange places, and they moved on. Now this book, again, it's called The Boy They Tried to Hide, has three kind of main stories running through it, so there's a lot more to the book than what I'm going to be covering on probably the next two episodes. But I will say that the book is a great example of how scary real-life, living, breathing people can be. And I would definitely recommend you check it out. I got it on Kindle for like 3 or $4. And I'm definitely glad I checked it out. Anyway, I mentioned Shane worked in the school. And his job was actually remedial teaching. I'm pretty sure this was a secondary school or... 
middle and high school. But the kids that he was teaching were from the ages of 12 and 18, as far as I can make out. The reason he had chosen this line of work was because he had previously been a social worker in a bigger city, presumably Dublin. And after like one or two really fucking heavy cases, he just had too much of it. And he decided to move to the west coast of Ireland and live in this little small countryside town and just take a slightly less heavy, calmer approach at life for a little while. All right. So like I said, his background was specifically dealing with children, whether it was children with special needs or just children in awful uh, predicaments or whatever. As a social worker, that's what was his kind of core clientele. Mm-hmm. And all of the people in the town knew that that was his background. And I'm sure that's how he got his new job as a remedial teacher. In late August or early September of 2013, it's the first week back in school and Shane is getting all of his teaching things in order at his desk. He gets a knock on the door and a woman he didn't know walks in. She introduces herself as Angus's mother. Angus was one of Shane's new students who he had just met that day and she wanted to know if Shane was going to be able to actually help him. She was basically just a nervous mother Her son obviously had a hard time learning in the traditional way, which was why he was in Shane's remedial class. And she basically said, like, yeah, he can be a little shit, but she doesn't want Shane going easy on him. (laughs) She just wants the boy to learn how to read and write properly. That was what he was struggling with the most. Yeah. It turns out this was only a pretense, however. She was worried about Angus Mm -hmm. and him learning to, (laughs) to read and write. But this woman... Orla Finnegan was her name. She knew about Shane's past working with troubled kids. And she asks him, if I tell you something, do you have to tell the social workers about it? Shane tells her, obviously, if a child is in danger or being abused, then yes, like I'm going to have to report it to actual social workers, not just him. But she says, no, 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 it's nothing like that. And again, she's clearly nervous and uncomfortable about what she's about to tell him. But she eventually blurts out, It's Angus's brother, Gregory. He keeps running off on me and I don't know what to do. Gregory is only eight years old and he keeps running off into the woods behind the house. Orla goes on to say, The trouble is, he often goes there at night and I don't know he's gone until I go into his room and the bed's empty. She says she makes sure that the doors are locked, but regardless of where she hides the key, he always manages to find them. That, or he'll just sneak out one of the windows. So Shane asks her the typical social worker questions which tend to make parents uncomfortable, such as, is there any abuse or bullying? Would there be anyone he's trying to meet up with in the woods or anything like that? But she assures him there's nothing out of the ordinary going on. Orla is a single mother, and it's just her and her two boys. Unlike Angus... Gregory is excelling in his schoolwork and all that stuff. So he's not stressing out about going to school or anything, you know. So Shane tells her not to worry. He says he's going to go over to the house and have a chat with the little lad and see what he can find out. The next day, when Shane has his class with Angus, Angus comes in all hormonal and upset with the fact that he has to go for remedial lessons. Like just embarrassed, I guess, because the other kids know. Mm-hmm. But eventually Shane wins him over. And they start talking. 
The subject of Gregory comes up pretty soon, and Shane asks him, Are you and Gregory close? Yeah, we lives out in the country, so there isn't a lot of other kids around. It's just me and Greggy mostly. Well, he says he has another friend, but I'm not so sure. I perked up at this. He says he has another friend. Surely you've met them. No, he says there's this little boy he calls to him at night. He sneaks off into the woods to play with him when we's all asleep. I asked him to wake me up so I could go and play too, but he never does. I think he's making it up. Did he tell you this boy's name? Yeah, he says his name is Thomas. Listen, I gotta go. Thanks for the comic book. So, obviously I was just quoting from the book there. And I have a lot more quoting from the book to do. Yeah. (laughs) So if I start talking in the first person, that's why. But also the reference to the comic book was that's how uh, Shane won Angus over. He gave him a little Power Rangers magazine and Angus said, this is great. I'm going to go home and share this with my little brother because he knows how to read and they can practice together. It's actually very cute, really. But this little interaction with Angus really put Shane on alert because from a social work point of view, this was bad news. Like he had heard stories and even worked on cases before where like disgusting, horrible adults would use kids as bait to lure other kids into just awful situations. So suddenly Orla's story didn't seem quite as innocent as just a young fella going out into the woods for adventures at night. Yeah. Now I know everybody probably knows how much I love a good timeline. I know Dulce does because this is my second time reading this. (laughs) Um, But I feel like I say that in every other episode. Unfortunately, in this particular case, I don't have a strict... Thursday the 1st, Friday the 2nd, 9.30, whatever. I just know that everything that happened in this story happened over the course of about three to four months between September and December or... Yeah, September and December or January of 2013. So it's still a pretty... As far as haunting cases go, mm-hmm. this is a pretty pretty recent one. Like Okay. The Finnegan's... Orla, Angus and Gregory lived around six kilometers, nearly four miles outside of the little town. It seemed they were pretty isolated, but Shane eventually finds the house and he goes in and sits down at the kitchen table to talk with Gregory. He asks if he wants to talk about his friend Thomas and Gregory just shakes his head. After a few minutes, it seems pretty clear that Gregory is intimidated by Shane. He is, after all, an eight-year-old boy and Shane is a complete stranger. So Shane says... Here's the thing I sometimes do with kids who find talking about stuff difficult. I'll tell you what I think is going on, and you can shake your head if I'm wrong or nod if I'm right. That way, you're telling me, but you don't have to talk unless you want to. How does that sound? There was the barest semblance of a nod, so I plowed on. That's how we should go on about our business. What? You'd be like, you just shake your head at me. I mean, sometimes that is how we go about our business. (laughs) You say, are you hungry? Was that a shake or... <laughs> you're, you're like, I'd better feed her just to be safe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I brought you these offerings. <laughs> That's legit how we do talk to each other, by the way. Yeah, he does. He tells me he brought me offerings. Yeah, especially if Dulce's gone quiet. I'd be like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's too quiet. Yeah, yeah. Here, please take these. As a sign that I mean well. 
Anyway, <laughs> there was the barest semblance of a nod, so I ploughed on. Your name is Gregory Finnegan. A nod. You have pink hair and three ears. A vigorous shake of the head. No? Shake, combined with just a touch of a smile. You go to school in the local town. Nod. Your teacher is a giant bunny rabbit called Malcolm. A laugh now, and a shake. You have a brother called Angus. Nod. You like the Power Rangers. Strong nod. You like playing the games on the Xbox. Shake. The PlayStation 3. Nod. You have a friend called Thomas. Nod. That, which means yes, sorry. <laughs> and you know him from school? Shake. No. He lives near you, like a neighbor. Yes. You met him at a football match? Nope. At church? Nope. At the beach? No. When you were shopping in town with your mother? No. Grasping at straws now, you met him on the internet. Gregory laughed and shook his head. I sat back, flat out of ideas. How did you meet him, Gregory? The little boy fiddled with the sleeve of his jumper for a moment. Then, almost in a whisper, I heard him. You heard him. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. That's what, like, I do have to keep reminding myself that this young, like, he is only eight years old. You know He's what I mean? He's a young fella. And also, this is written in, like, Irish? the town dialect. Or not Irish. Uh, where is this again? Yeah, it is. It's in Ireland. Oh, okay. But it's just written, like, in small town, country kind of dialect. So sometimes, if I'm saying shit, it might come across a bit weird, but I'm just reading it verbatim. I heard him crying. It was my turn to shake my head this time. I still don't get it, Gregory, I said. You'll have to explain it to me better. Hopping down from his chair, the boy took my hand. Come on, I'll show you. Gregory takes Shane upstairs to his bedroom, over to his little window that looked out over the woods behind the house and says, he was down there, beyond the fence. They had a low, rusty fence that cordoned off their back garden from the woods and Gregory had seen Thomas between the fence and the line of trees. He was crying. He waked me up. It was real late. I'd been in bed a long time. I woke up because I heard someone crying. Like, they was real sad or something. I thought it was my mam. But then I listened and it wasn't. I knew it was a kid and the more I listened, I knew it wasn't Angus. And then I listened more and I heard it was coming from outside. So I got out of my bed and pulled back the curtain and I looked out. It was real dark, so I had to look hard, but then I seen him. Shane asked, this kid Thomas? Gregory nodded. I didn't know his name then. I just saw a little kid. He was standing right under that tree, the big one nearest our fence. I opened the window and looked out and I saw he was small. I'm the second shortest kid in my class and Thomas is a lot smaller than me. He was wearing real old clothes. He always wears the same things. I don't think he has any others. And he has black hair and white, white skin. When he saw me, he stopped crying and looked up at me. And he kind of made a move with his hand, like he was asking me to go down and talk to him. And you did. He looked real sad and lonely. That was very kind of you, Gregory, but... It sounds to me as if Thomas may be in some kind of trouble. Where does he live? I think I should go and have a chat with his mum and dad. He don't got no mum and dad, 
Gregory said. Does he live with his grandparents? No. His aunt and uncle? No. Foster family? No. Okay, tell me. He lives on his own in the woods. He don't got no family and he don't go to school. It's only him. And he told me he just wants someone to play with him. We're bestest friends, him and me. (laughs) Bestest friends. Bestest friends. Clearly taken aback by this very impressive story, Shane logically concludes that this is, quote, classic imaginary friend material. He advises Orla to install bolts on the doors high up so Gregory can't reach them, maybe get some baby monitors so she can hear him if he tries to sneak out at night, and to try to get Gregory into some after-school activities or invite his school friends over in the evenings, just so as he's not as lonely. He tells Orla, Thomas is serving a purpose just now. If you take that purpose away, you'll find he goes away with it. So, I mean, as a full-grown man who is not like us and is going to go, oh my God, ghost. (laughs) He's thinking as logically as he possibly can. And he's thinking, oh shit, like this little boy who lives on the very edge of town with no neighbors and just his older brother is just lonely and is making up friends to hang out with. Mm Mm-hmm. So a week goes by and Shane is sitting in his classroom marking papers when he gets a call from the local police station. And I will say the police in Ireland um, are called Garda or Gardi. So if you hear me say Garda Tom or Garda Doyle or something, it just means like officer. They ask him to come in and have a little chat. Gregory has been sneaking out again. When Shane gets to the police station, the Garda reads from his notebook We received a call from Orla Finnegan two nights ago. She said that she had looked in on her son Gregory at about 12.30 that night and found his bed empty. She made a search of the house, but he wasn't anywhere. She awoke her other son, Angus, and they reconned the area about their abode, an action which did not serve to locate Gregory. At this point, she called the station. I went out to the house, accompanied by Garda Casey Warren, We ventured as far as we could into the woods in search of the boy, but it proved fruitless, not to mention dangerous, and we were forced to abandon the attempt after an hour. I remained with the family throughout the night, but Gregory did not return, and at first light, with two other officers, we made another search of the area. Garda Doyle took a photograph from an envelope on the table and passed it to Shane. I observed a set of footprints leading from the fence to the area below Gregory's bedroom window. The photo showed a close-up of one of these prints with the measuring tape laid beside it to show the scale. Shane said, Fuck. Thomas is real. Yep. The police Fuck is right. <laughs> Shane, come here and I tell you, fuck is right. <laughs> <laughs> the police had been able to confirm that one set of tracks were Gregory's, leading from the back door and meeting up with the other tracks before heading out into the woods. The police said that these were either children's shoe prints or that of a very small adult. Or a raccoon wearing shoes. <laughs> well, we don't have raccoons in Ireland, but it could have been a fox. Oh, wear- you don't have raccoons in Ireland? No. What? Yeah, but it could have been a fox wearing children's shoes, I suppose. No trash panda? No. Hmm. Um. <laughs> How sad for you. <laughs> they managed to follow these tracks and eventually found Gregory approximately five miles from the house, in an area of dense woodland not far from the beach. No, five miles is a lot 
yeah, it for is. an eight-year-old kid to walk. Fuck, yeah. Never mind an eight-year-old kid walking in the dark in the woods. That's... How, how is he... That poor thing. He's like, I don't want to play Thomas. I'm tired. No, he's excited. It's him and his best friend going on an adventure. Is it, though? I, th- I really think so at this stage, yeah. So according to the police notes, when we found Gregory Finnegan, he was alone. He did indicate that another child, a boy he referred to as Thomas, was nearby. He said they were playing hide-and-go-seek, but I called and looked very thoroughly and couldn't find anyone. Although it seems clear he did leave his home in the company of another person. So, like I made the joke before, Thomas was much better at hide-and-seek than Garda Doyle. (laughs) 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 I'm going to get a laugh track put in. It's going to be like watching Friends. Yeah. Thomas was much better at hide-and-seek than Garda Doyle. So with this revelation, and now having the police involved, the story was back to square one. Thomas was not an imaginary friend, and was definitely luring Gregory out at night, but now there was concern over Thomas's well-being too. Not only was Gregory at risk, but if his version of events is true... Thomas is being seriously neglected. Mm-hmm. The police had been in touch with social services and checked all of the reports for cases of runaway children, but they couldn't find anything. That evening, in the pub, Shane is having a pint with his walking buddy, George, the principal of the school, and Shane confided in George what was going on, knowing that, in his position, George would completely understand the confidentiality and all that. George's response was not what Shane had expected. He said, If I didn't know better, I'd say you have just stepped into the middle of a local legend. I love George. I think George might be my favourite. Um, lo- that, that's, that's some heavy shit. Yeah, right. <laughs> but definitely I think George is my favourite um, character in this whole... And I kind of picture him as, you know, the older, like, smiling from the mouth but not the eyes meme? <laughs> Yeah, you know, oh, the really sad the old, old guy. Yeah, I picture him like something like that. Where he's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, this is a podcast, so people can't see that. But Dulce is doing her best impression of the smiling from the mouth, <laughs> but not the eyes guy. George goes on. There's a folk tale of sorts hereabouts. <laughs> I can imagine George's accent being very heavy. There's a folk tale of sorts hereabouts, a kind <laughs> of urban, or should I say, rural myth. <laughs> It tells of a young mother who becomes pregnant through incest by her father, if I remember the details correctly. Terrified of being discovered, he takes her into the woods and locks her in a cabin that he has constructed there. He brings her food and water, and when she comes to full term, she gives birth to a little boy. Now, I can't continue that accent. It's probably insulting somebody, and I'm sorry. But just keep that in mind as I go on. The father knows he will be undone if he is ever found out. Ireland back then was still in the throes of church tyranny and there was the criminal element of it all. So he insists that she remains in the woods to raise the child. He still brings out parcels of food, but by now his visits have grown very short and often he doesn't bother to come for days at a time and the mother and her boy grow hungry and desperate. Gradually, owing to the loneliness and the trauma of her abuse, she begins to go insane. She takes to roaming the woodland paths, taking the child with her, and day by day ventures deeper and deeper into the forest. 
One morning, her father arrives at the cabin to find it empty. Day after day, he searches for the girl, and they say he finally found her, half dead from hunger and cold, by a grove of willows near the lower slopes of the mountains. And the child? She was cradling him in her arms, but he had died during the night of exposure. I can't say for certain, but I believe the events that I have just recounted happened, if they really happened at all, in the late 70s or early 80s. The story began to receive general circulation around 1985. People have always said that parts of the woods are haunted. Of course, the details of these ghostly occurrences were non-specific, but around late 1989, when I started to work here, I began hearing tales of this type. Hikers would say they had seen the figure of a child through the trees or heard the sound of a baby crying. I generally don't pay much heed to such things. People from Parks and Wildlife have spoken of finding trails of small footprints that lead to impassable thickets, vanishing into trees that no one, not even a child, could penetrate. There are strange things in those woods, George said, but would be drawn no further on the subject. So George is kind of leaving these like this like fucking ominous ass story, right? Yeah. And it definitely sounds like the perfect local legend being a legend and that's it. Mm hmm. And the other thing is, like, George seems to be Shane's go-to guy for level-headed, logical solutions to problems. So although he wasn't suggesting Thomas was a ghost, the fact that he even brought this legend up really threw Shane for a loop. I feel like he didn't tell him the story to scare him, but it was more like a warning, like, maybe don't believe everything people tell you, Mm -hmm. that type of thing. Like, Mm -hmm. maybe this kid heard it through his mother, or the mother heard it, and then told the kid the story, something, you know, mm-hmm. just like look out for yourself kind of thing. And a few days after this ominous message from George, there are strange things in the woods. Shane takes Gregory into the local town to get some ice cream. Shane mentions in the book that ice cream is a great conduit for kids who find it hard to talk to adults. <laughs> and as Gregory is sitting there, absolutely destroying this chocolate sundae (laughs) he suddenly says Shane who are the A-team obviously this was out of the blue but Shane asks him do you mean the Ed Sheeran song because Ed Sheeran had a single called the A-team out at that time Uh so he thought oh maybe you just fucking heard it I was wondering who he's singing about but Gregory says no I think it's a TV show Grasping at straws, Shane says, Ah, you must mean the film. Like, they did a remake of it a few years ago, but but Gregory persists. No, this is a program and it's on every week. Thomas watches it. He says he really likes it. I asked my mammy about it, but she looked on the TV planner and couldn't find it. Shane, still absolutely flabbergasted, says, It does get repeated sometimes, but to be honest, I haven't seen it in a while. Are you sure Thomas watches it? Yeah, I was telling him about Power Rangers and he didn't know about them at all. I asked him what his favourite TV show was and he said, the A-team. He said, he pities the fool who doesn't like it too. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah, this even gave Shane a good laugh. Like even in all of this confusion, he said he like burst out (laughs) laughing in the middle of this cafe. (laughs) Love that shit. In the... 
little child's thick country accent. He yeah. says he pities the fool who doesn't like it too. <laughs> Love that shit. So Shane asks, really? What else does Thomas like? Well, he doesn't like the Xbox neither. And he don't have a PlayStation. No? Well, I suppose some kids survive without them. I don't know any other kids who don't have one or the other. Does he play any games? He says he has a a specky or something. A specky? I paused, my mind whirling. You don't mean a spectrum? A ZX spectrum? Yeah, that's it. Is that some kind of new console? No, it's really, really old. I used to have one. That's how ancient it is. <laughs> it's what we used to call a home computer. Whoa. Yeah, so according to Wikipedia, the ZX Spectrum is an 8-bit personal home computer developed by Sinclair Research. It was first released in the United Kingdom on the 23rd of April, 1982. Wow. And went on to become Britain's best-selling microcomputer. 8 bits. It was so old that it had cassettes loading, like the games. I've never seen that. I've never seen that either. I've had people explain how it works. Mm -hmm. It still blows my mind. But Gregory went on to name games that Thomas had for his specky. And sure enough, they were the ones that Shane used to play himself. Shane explains to Gregory how the old machine used to work and what these games were. But when he tells Gregory that he'd love to meet Thomas, Gregory tells him... Tells him, fuck off, that's my friend. Yeah. Gregory tells him he don't like adults. Why not? Says they bad. I told him my mammy was nice, but he didn't believe me. Oh, that's cute. My mammy. My mammy's nice. (laughs) (laughs) My mammy's nice too, Gregory. (laughs) Your mum tells me you haven't gone out at night since the police found you. I can't go out no more. Mammy locked the door and hid the keys. She put a thing on it that locks too, high up so I can't reach it. I'm good at finding the keys, but that new thing was too hard for me. (laughs) So you haven't seen Thomas since then? No, I sees him. How? He comes in my room now. How does he get in if the door is locked? I don't know. I wake up and he's there. Do you let him in the window? He's just a little kid. He couldn't climb in no window. And that was that. Gregory just sort of matter-of-factly leaves it there. He's like, don't be a tick. <laughs> Can't climb in a window. I remember Gregory's room is upstairs in the house. Yeah. So later on, when Shane tells Orla what his ice cream expedition had revealed, she assures him that this little house is like Fort Knox now and nobody's getting in. Although she has heard Gregory start to talk in his sleep. This is a new development and she says it's it's just gibberish. Like it's nothing. It's not like he's holding a conversation or anything. Mm-hmm. So the following week, Shane shows up at the Finnegan household with a box set at the A team and his laptop. He tried his best to buy a specky. He couldn't find any that weren't being sold for like mental money because these things were like they're collectors things now. Mm-hmm. So he settled on downloading an emulator on his laptop, which is what we did with the like Super Nintendo and stuff. Mm-hmm. But he did this so as he could show Gregory the games that Thomas was talking about. Yeah. Which I thought, like, that's really nice. You know what I mean? Yeah. He asked Gregory, did Thomas know what he was talking about when he spoke about the PlayStation or, like, popular games like Grand Theft Auto? 
And Gregory just said, he don't want to talk about it. This is good, though. Him and me can chat about the spectrum now. No. And before he left that day, Shane asks Gregory to do him a favor. He says, the next time you see Thomas, will you ask him what song is number one in the charts? And Gregory didn't know what the fuck this means, but, quote, shaking his head as if I was a bit simple and needed to be humored. (laughs) Gregory agreed. (laughs) (laughs) He's all like, yeah, Yeah. I I fucking guess. Okay, old man, what fucking, what is these, what is this language that you're speaking? But I don't know what you guys had over here, but we had Top of the Pops and it was a program on every week. And it was, it would go through the charts and like, I think it was whoever was at number one or very high up in the charts would come on and perform. Yeah. Like it was supposed to be live, but they always just like lip synced to a copy of the single. Really? Yeah. And that led to like some controversy with, I don't know, some bands over the years. And that like would have been major in the 80s. Like I still remember watching it in the 90s briefly because my mom and like aunties would have watched it. Yeah. So anyway. Uh, we we had something called TRL on MTV. Yeah, I think this was just a little bit older than that. Mm. And it had kept the same format for like years and years. I see. My uncle was on it. Mm. Yeah, it was a big deal for the family. It was before I was born. But anyway. Mm. Sometime later, I'm assuming like within the next week or so, Shane gets woken up late one evening to the sound of his phone ringing. Shane, it's Orla Finnegan. Hello, Orla. I'm sorry to call you so late. What time is it? It's about 11, I think. No, uh, that's fine, Orla. Is everything okay? I don't know. Can you come out? I hate to ask, but I'm, I'm frightened. I'll be there as quickly as I can. Has somebody tried to break in or something? Are the kids all right? I don't know. Just get here, please. Should I call the police? I don't think they can help with this. How fucking ominous, right? (laughs) So Shane rushes over to the house. And when he gets there, Orla ushers him into the kitchen quickly. She shows him a tape recorder sitting on the kitchen table and says, listen to this. She had heard voices on the baby monitors that evening. Yeah, she had taken Shane's advice and bought the monitors to make sure that Gregory wasn't sneaking out. Yeah. But this evening she recorded what she heard. The voices were barely audible over the hiss of the monitor and the tape recorder. Like this was an actual cassette recorder. So Shane pressed it against his ear and listened carefully. I don't want to go out the window, Gregory's voice. He sounded upset. I want to play in the trees, another child's voice, but lower in register, perhaps older. Mammy doesn't want me going no more. She says it's dangerous. This room is too small. Outside you can hide and I can look for you. We could go out the door, the deeper voice said. I told you, I don't got the key. We could find it. No, Mammy gets scared when I go off with you. It makes her cry. But I cry when you won't come and play with me. There was an urgency this time, an anger. We can play something in here, anything you want. I'm going. I don't like it in here. Will you come back and see me? You come and see me next time. That's hard for me. You has to play fair. Next time is your turn. There was a thudding sound as if something was being moved. 
then more banging, and then Orla's voice. Gregory, are you all right? Gregory, love. He was in the room by himself, sitting on the floor, she said, her face deathly white. The window was open, and there was old pine needles and dirt on the mat. I looked out the window and I thought. She paused, biting her lip. I thought I saw a child, a little boy, walking away into the trees beyond the fence. It was just an outline, a shadow really. I think I saw him, I don't know anymore. I'm not going to lie, when I was reading this first, like, I knew the story, mm-hmm. roughly, but going into that little bit more detail, like, that gave me fucking chills. Yeah, it's so intimate. Yeah, and so innocent as well. Yeah. Like, and poor uh, Gregory is, like, really emotional, and he's like, no, don't leave me. Like, come on, we can yeah. play here. So, understandably, Orla is terrified, or was terrified, and didn't go looking after what she may or may not have seen. But Shane goes outside using the flashlight from his phone and he can't see anything. Like he's not a tracker or anything, you know. But he did take note that there was a drain pipe by the window. But like a slick drain pipe, like nowhere to put your feet or anything. He records the tape recording onto his phone to go and show the police and tells Orla that she needs to screw that window shut so it can't be open at all. Thomas seems to have threatened Gregory saying he needs to go into the woods if he wants to see him again. Mm -hmm. So Shane brings this recording of a recording to the police. And I know he was just doing it so he could have some sort of record, like they're involved in this case now. But all it did was scare the shit out of the police. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, they just listened wide-eyed and were like, what do we do with this? You know what I mean? That's my favorite part of this story is there's so many like official type people people involved. Yeah. And it just defies their like, well, we can't fill out a form for that. Yeah. (laughs) There's no form for that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Will you get the I-794, the ghost form? (laughs) The spooks form. Yeah. So in Ireland, I'm, I'm sure it's probably the same here, but we get a week off around Halloween. What? Yeah, we get a week off school. We don't get a week off. No? No. So what, you go in in September and you don't have any breaks until Christmas? Till November. Oh, for Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And then you go back in for a week and a half and then you come back out for Christmas. Yep. <sighs> <laughs> well, I don't. I work. <laughs> yeah, well, in schools, we get a week off for Halloween because Halloween is a real holiday. <laughs> no but in in all seriousness though halloween started in ireland with like the pagans and that so i guess we've been taking that week off for the last like two thousand years <laughs> awesome um anyway the teachers get that week off too obviously but knowing that his friend george would still be in the school regardless initially shane says do you want to pop over for a coffee and something to eat mm-hmm. george said no why are you here <laughs> so shane says all right well I was just coming over to ask you if you wanted a break. And he says, no, I'll meet you in the pub tonight. But here, take this folder. So Shane takes the folder and leaves. And in the folder is three newspaper articles from an out of print local newspaper. The first one was from October 16th, 1985. And the headline reads, local child missing, father accused of kidnapping. 
The Venerable Father Senna Malone, parish priest of Garshai and its environs, has asked this newspaper to put out a call to all her loyal readers. Father Malone has been consoling a local mother whom he says is bereft. The good woman, Miss Winifred Tobin, of the Dunshire Road, reported to him that the father of her child, from whom she is estranged, has abducted their son and taken him to Australia. Father Malone told your correspondent, Obviously, I am concerned that this little boy may be in the hands of a parent whose morals have been compromised. I do not know which parish he resides in in Australia, and although I do have a name, I have not been able to locate him through the usual channels. I know that many of your readers will know the gentleman to whom I, to whom I am referring, so I am putting out a request that anyone reading this who might be aware of the whereabouts of this gentleman to pass the information on to me at the parochial house so I can set the boy's mother's mind at ease. Miss Tobin was unavailable for comment. The second article, from the same paper, about a week later, reads, Woman at centre of abduction dies tragically. The local woman whose child was kidnapped by her husband and taken overseas, possibly to Australia, has died suddenly under tragic circumstances. She has been named by the Gardaí as Winifred Tobin of Dunshire Road, Garshaig. Miss Tobin has been living at that location, it seems, for the past 15 years, but her movements before then are not known, and local authorities are anxious to locate family members so her affairs can be settled. Send all information to the Garda station in the town. And the final article from this newspaper reads, Hoax. It seems that all these attempts to bring the lad back to his home were misplaced. Investigations have unearthed no records of Miss Tobin ever having given birth to a child in any of the nearby hospitals. Father Malone was told that the boy, who was reported to be about 10 years old, had been baptised in Ennis. But there is no evidence to support that claim either. Her nearest neighbours lived two miles from her, and they admitted that they had never seen the boy, and he was not enrolled in any local schools. When Miss Tobin's house was visited by Gardy following her death, they found only a child's bike and a home computer with some games, but no children's clothes and no other evidence that a child had ever been in the house. It seems likely that the poor woman was beset by some kind of delusion in which, possibly through loneliness, she imagined a child. In truth, Miss Tobin was rarely seen about the town and, living rurally, had little contact with others. Quote, it seems we failed this woman, Father Malone told the paper when we spoke to him over the weekend. If someone had reached out to her, perhaps things would not have ended so badly. A photograph accompanied this final piece. It was of the living room of Winifred Tobin's house. Although very grainy and in black and white, I could make out an old-fashioned tube television, a low coffee table sitting in front of it, and sitting on the coffee table was the home computer mentioned in the article. It was a ZX Spectrum. Hmm. When Shane meets with George later on in the pub, George explains, The myth I told you previously is, I believe, the local population's attempt to process the events in the story that you saw in those newspaper clippings. They say small towns have long memories, but in fact, I think they have a remarkable capacity to twist facts to suit the cultural mores of the time. Father Malone, the priest back then, 
chastise people for not having reached out to the poor woman in the middle of all this. A rebuke from the man of the cloth in 1986 would have been taken very seriously, and I believe he backed it up by berating his congregation from the altar too. He told them that a needy person had been in their midst, and they had turned their backs on her. Where were the good Samaritans of this town when this lonely woman was, for want of a better term, going mad? So, in short, the story, George believed, was concocted to appease the collective unconscious of the local townspeople. The child element was purely a symptom of the legend and gave the story what it needed to become just a scary story and nothing to be ashamed of. Pretty deep. I wrote that. (laughs) I think George, as a man of pure logic, wanted the whole thing to just get wrapped up and sealed shut. You know, like not in a bad way or anything. He just wanted a solution. Mm Mm-hmm. But there was no arguing in these creepy coincidences. Just even the time, the the location of the cottage, stuff like that. The ZX Spectrum sitting on the table in the picture. And one other fact that he learned was that where the Finnegans live now, or lived at the time, was around two and a half miles from Winifred's house. Meaning that they would have been her closest neighbours if she had still been alive. Mm-hmm. He went on to tell Shane that this priest, Father Malone, was still alive, in his 90s, living in a nursing home, but still very lucid. And I think that's where we're going to leave this for right now. Awesome. I'll finish it up next week. Um, And like I said earlier, thanks so much for everybody who pointed me in the right direction to get this, because reading the full story, I have thoroughly enjoyed it. And I, it's one of my favorite stories I think I've ever heard. Sick. So, yeah. <laughs> all right. And yeah, that's about it. Cool. Any last words? Follow us on all the channels, uh, the platforms, I mean. Yeah. And uh, reach out to us so we can have a little chat, a little chit-chat, a little back and forth. Yeah. And uh, that's it. We'll see you next week. Yeah. Don't forget to follow us on Patreon. There's the $2 tier, $5 tier, $10 tier. Um, If you're listening on iTunes right now, please give us a nice rating and review. And once again, sorry to any of the people that I offended last week with with my bad jokes. Yeah. All right. Have a great weekend, creeps. Okay, bye. Bye.